Hi everyone, I hope you're all well and keeping safe and happy and everything. And I'm very happy today because I'm going to be talking to a very, very dear friend of mine. She's a wonderful actress, a wonderful writer, producer, a really lovely lady. I've known her for many, many years. She is Victoria Tennant. Hello, Victoria. How are you? Hello, Twiggy. I'm really well, thanks. Well, we only saw each other, what? Oh, not that long ago. October. Yeah. Yeah, September, we October. Went for yeah. a very delicious and mad breakfast with your daughter, Katia, my daughter, Carlia, and little baby yeah. Theo. <laughs> it was <laughs> big delicious. Big baby actually. Theo. Huh? Big baby. Big baby Theo. Yeah, he is a big yeah. baby. Absolutely. Yeah. But you're back home in the States, safe and sound. Yes. How How is it there now? We're not hugely impacted because... We live in the country, you know, there are country roads, we go for walks. Mm. There's, you know, not a lot to do out here except go to the supermarket. I know, it's gorgeous. You're you're out on Long Island, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. It's one of my favourite places in the world. I do, I do, I'm a bit jealous of you actually because it's so, (laughs) have you got snow yet? No, we had a tiny flurry last week that melted away immediately, so not yet. Oh, you will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, last winter it was huge snowstorms, tons of snow. It was quite beautiful. Yeah, I, I, you sent me some pictures, I remember. Because now this is quite a, a new move for you from Los Angeles back to New York, right? Yes. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. I mean, I, I really always wanted to be on the East Coast rather than the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So it was terrific coming back here a year ago. And the, the autumn is my favourite time of year, so... And it's the best. On that east coast of America, it's the best, isn't it? The autumn colours. And the the more upstate you go, it's just breathtaking. The autumn colours are amazing. And one of the huge things for me is the migrating geese. Formation after formation of these V-shaped, you know, flying squads of geese go overhead and they honk as they go. (laughs) So, so... Everywhere you you walk overhead, there's wah, 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 wah. I mean, it's so beautiful. So they're going out or coming in? Going out, I guess. I don't know. Where are they going, do you think? South Africa, probably. I don't know. They don't say. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, they're going from north to south, I guess. But for warmer climes. It happens in late November and it goes all the way you know, through December. And, oh, how beautiful. And they come down on the ponds to rest oh. overnight and then they go up again. It's it's wildly beautiful to hear this noise all the time. And are you very near the beach? Two blocks. Oh, love From the big dunes, yeah. And great bicycling around mm. the country lanes here. Yeah, my daughter and son and I, we, we have bikes. and Lovely. Yeah, it's Good great. way to exercise. I do envy you. I, I mean, like you, I love LA, but I don't, I don't ever long for it and miss it. But I really, really miss New York and well, Long it's Island. One thing, it's one thing to be there when you're young and hopeful and, you're, yeah. you know, you're getting your first jobs and you're working and working, working, working. And now at this stage in my life, I feel like I want to be more at home. Yeah. I'm right. You know, I'm right. I need to be in my head and writing and I, I I actually do all right 
um, being quite solitary. Yeah, I so, always think of you. I bet you're good on your own. I, I'm pretty good on my own, actually, for, for small periods of time. Yeah. I don't well, think I'd like it for long periods. But I, um, had, I had this, um, I mean, I guess, I guess a, a, a therapist would say traumatic experience <laughs> when I was uh, three years old. Um, and my parents were living in the country in England, and I came down with mysterious rashes and very high fevers. And the local doctor couldn't figure out what it was. And doctors from London came down, and I was, you know, pricked and prodded and tested and whatever. And it turned out that I had paratyphoid, which What's was not that? typhoid. It was a kind of oh, typhoid. typhoid. Yeah. Not, I thought you were going to say like meningitis or something. No, not something that you would expect, oh which was why God. it took a long time to diagnose. And I was taken to the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London and put in solitary isolation in a room for a month. And you were three? I was three. Oh my and God. my parents weren't allowed to come in the room. There was a little window, just big enough, you know, like a snorkeling goggles oh, yeah, yeah, there was yeah, a little yeah. window in the door and my mum and dad would come most days and my mum would cry so I would see just her eyes crying and she would wave at me but otherwise for that month the only people who came in the room were nurses with masks on um, who would you know bed wash me and bring me my meals and I was left completely alone the rest of the time. And every two oh, days... Victoria, that's the most awful story. My every God. two days I was put on a metal gurney and wheeled to a blood test room because there was the only medicine they had then was a medicine that could give you leukaemia. So they had to test you every two days to make sure that you weren't getting sick with something else. Oh. And this went on for four weeks. I woke up alone. I went to sleep alone. Can you remember it clearly? Oh, yeah, totally. Three is very young. No, I do remember it. See, and I'm too young to read. And there, there was no telephone or no TV, right? So you were, there you were in the room with, you know, I had a wooden flute and some puzzles and picture books, and that oh was it. God. So I reckon that that month kind of conditioned me to manage being completely alone. Yeah. In, in in later life, absolutely. In later My life, goodness. but it would be unthinkable to do that to a I don't think they, they do. They wouldn't do that now, would they? I don't. I think don't so. think they'd be allowed to to leave a three-year-old completely alone. Yeah. And this well, was in was this in England? Yeah. Oh my yeah. god! Hey, by the way, have you got your cup of tea? I have. Before it's we carry it's on, it's your. Yorkshire Gold. Of course. Tailors of Harrogate. <laughs> <laughs> My dad was from Yorkshire, so I'm being loyal. I didn't realise he was a Yorkshireman. Oh, yes. Wakefield. Oh, gosh, gosh, Lee, Lee you know, my husband, yes. who you know, that's how we met, actually, through Lee, yes. because you worked together, but he went to he went to um, uni in Wakefield. Really? Yeah. Why didn't I didn't know that. I don't know. He went yeah. to Leeds University. Yeah. And it's in Wake, well, the place he went for his courses were in Wakefield. Well, every time the kids and I are in England, we go to Yorkshire That's to right. stay with my dear, dear cousins up there. That's so. right. I, 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 actually, now you say it, I remember that. But I didn't realise your dad was actually a Yorkshireman. Yeah. 
So you were you. So he's from Yorkshire, and he was yeah. a very, very famous producer and and theatrical agent, wasn't agent, he? Agent, yes, yes, that's, that's right. right. His his clients were kind of a who's who of the great <laughs> English actors of the time. I mean, really, it was crazy. Well, didn't he have all all the sirs and lords and well? Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier, who were the kids' godparents, um, all the Red Graves, and Tony Richardson and Ralph Richardson and Sybil Thorndike and Edith Evans and Amazing. Noel Coward and, you know, David Warner. Well, and... Laurence Olivier is your godfather, right? Was... Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and we went, you know, we'd stay weekends and we went on holidays together, Ireland, Spain, wow. Greece, um, Peter Ustinov. Uh, but as a little one, you you probably didn't realise who they were and how famous they were, right? They were just well, obviously not. They were <laughs> they were friends. just family friends. They were Uncle Larry and Auntie Vivian, and you know Uncle this and Auntie that, and you know they were just who they were. And I thought it was very interesting when they talked about their work and how they prepared for their work. I thought you know that's what everyone does, and I thought. <laughs> I thought that's what being an actor was. I didn't know there were people who sort of carried a spear at the back of the stage. I thought, well, that, you know, you say you felt like doing Henry V and you did Henry V. That's what <laughs> acting was. <laughs> and then when we were out and about, you know, with these people and the rest of the world was very interested in them or would come up and ask for autographs. I just thought, wow, odd, why are they asking Uncle Larry to write on a bit of paper? Do you know, I didn't understand what was going so on. Funny. Yeah. Well, you know, my mother was very famous. I was just going to say, tell our listeners who about your mum. Well, cause... my my mother was a white Russian ballerina. Her parents escaped from Russia during the revolution, the rest of the family was mostly killed. Oh, and they escaped across the border into what was then Romania and lived in the slums in a factory. And my grandpa worked in the factory and he laid bricks and he cleaned offices. And then they went to Paris where she was given ballet lessons for free because they had no money. And the teacher did that because she thought my mother had some talent and she became a prima ballerina with a ballet russe so in the ballet world she was a huge star so I would see people you know being fan-like towards old mum it's like <laughs> but that's mum <laughs> so yeah and well, I've said I mean you very kind you did you did that wonderful book which Kate what when did you publish that about five years ago yeah Irina Baronova yeah another's name yeah. was gorgeous um, if anyone and it's interested to get it. It's a really lovely book and beautiful photographs. She was absolutely Amazing gorgeous. photos. Yeah, when mum died, she lived in Australia. When she died, all her papers, the contents of her office, were sent to me by my sister because the climate where she lived, Byron Bay, same place as my sister's, very, very humid, subtropical, and anything on paper goes mouldy. Oh, that's right. So I said, you know, I, I live in a desert. I lived in L.A. at the time. Send it to me. I'll take care of it. And I thought we were talking, you know, a couple of shoeboxes and like a truckload <laughs> of stuff. It was unbelievable. It was like oh a moving God. van arrived. And I looked at this mountain of packing cases in my hallway and I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? 
And so I pinned up a tablecloth, a white tablecloth over the window of my office to protect all the paper and the photographs from the light. And I started opening the boxes and there were over 2,000 photographs going, going back to 1915. Oh, my goodness. That's Most amazing. of them unidentified. You know, some like little postage stamps oh, yeah. with that white frilly bit, you know, and yeah, then yeah, some yeah. big ones. And there were professional ones by great photographers, you know, like Cortez and Cecil Beaton and whatever. But there were also a lot of pictures that my grandpa, Mikhail, took, which were gorgeous backstage at Covent Garden, you know, the sort of private pictures, which were incredible. And I used a lot of his photographs in the book. I say there's a lot of those in the book, aren't there? So yeah. what, have, have you kind of put them in some sort of order? In well, it took, I decided that I would give everything to the Lincoln Center Library in Brilliant. New York, which has one of the greatest theater opera ballet collections in the world. And it was a the right place for her papers to be because a lot of other great dancers' papers are there. So hers fitted into the collection. Well, they must but have been I, thrilled. But I thought, I can't just, you know, hand over the boxes. Who knows what's in them? I got to see what it is first. Mm -hmm. um, so it took me five months to catalogue. Mm all the photographs, all the correspondence that went back to 1926, you know, passports, um. everything. And I found in one box, I found a little, like an old-fashioned underwear bag with a zip, you know, a little oh. silk bag. And I opened it. The zip was quite rusty. And there were a pair of pink satin toe shoes. Oh. And inside, my mother had written her name in biro on one. And on the other, she'd written my last performance. Oh, wow. And I just sat on the floor and wept holding these shoes. And I, I actually gave those, the toe shoes, to the Vaganova Academy Museum in St. Petersburg. Oh, because my mum was born in St. Petersburg. She fled as a refugee during the revolution and she never got to dance there. So I bought her toe oh. shoes back. Oh, how move. It must have been. Yeah. I was just saying, for any child going through their parents, you know, possessions is hard, but for, to do it for five months and to find out so much about yeah. her and her life must have been well, it was wonderful, but incredibly moving. It was. You know, I was devastated when she died I mean I knew I knew it was coming I was I knew I knew how I would be told I knew the phone would ring at about four o'clock in the afternoon I knew it would be my sister's voice on the phone um I had been to stay with her for a week three weeks before she died and I called her every day I knew it was coming and she said I'm ready I'm ready to go mm. and, and she was she wasn't sick or anything she was just old and then the call came at four o'clock and it was my sister and, you know, and I was just devastated. And then when her things came for those five months, it was like I had her back again and I could spend every day with her. And I thought, oh, why didn't I ask her these questions when she was here? I, did, I mean, I'd never seen most of this stuff before. It had been shoved in the back of a cupboard. When she married your dad, did she, had she stopped dancing then? That was a condition of the marriage proposal. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. 
Yeah, yeah. He didn't want her to continue dancing. No, well, no, because that meant touring and rehearsing oh, yeah. and she would never be at home and how was she going to have children? Yeah. And yeah. so that was a condition. Ooh, that's pretty major um, when you're a star in, in that world. Well, I don't think I don't think a man could say that to a woman now, but you could then. <laughs> And you know, you she could, thought you couldn't, you couldn't get away with it. I don't think she was thir- she was thirty, which in in those days that was old to be a mother. It was also old to be a dancer. And she thought she was being offered, you know, a second chance at a life that she thought she wouldn't have: marriage, home. She was a refugee. She'd never had a home oh. before, children, and I. You know, she did. She had this other life of a real home and a real place and a safe haven, but I think she paid a price for it, I think. Did, did you ever talk to her did, saying, did you miss it and did you long Oh, she her? missed it dreadfully. There were times when it was very painful. If she went to the theatre, you know, she would take us to Covent Garden yeah. to see a ballet every Christmas, and then she'd come home and cry. Oh, yeah. Um, Amazing. It's extraordinary what people... What, how people's lives pan out, especially in, in different eras. Yes, Amazing. yes, totally. So for those five months, I, you know, I, I catalogued the stuff. I kept a few things, the, the textiles, the costume pieces, the headdresses, and some paintings went to the V&A in London. All the stuff mm. on paper went to the Lincoln Centre Library. The toe shoes went to St. Petersburg, and then all the boxes were packed up again and back in the hallway waiting to be picked up. And I was devastated all over again. It was like I was losing her all over again. But Um, I I think you did the right thing because, you know, that they're in the places they should be and and they're for for everyone to see and and admire her work. Whereas if they're just packed in boxes, nobody would know. Well, and then, you know, a generation or two later, someone chucks them out because what the hell is this? yeah, it's they're where they should be. But while I was sitting on, on the floor of my office with all these piles of photographs, I thought, this is the life of an artist in pictures. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this would be great for my kids and my sister's kids and my brother's kids yeah. to see their granny. And I was sort of thinking of it more like a family photo album. And then I thought, well, I'll just write enough text you know, so the pictures are in context. Yeah. I wasn't arrogant enough to think, oh, this is going to be a book and someone's going to publish it. I was really just doing it for us. And then I got a call. It took me two years to make the book. And and I hired a book designer and we did it together, you know, the placement of the photographs and everything. And about a year into the two years that it took me to do it, I, the phone rang. And it was the publisher, the University of Chicago Press publisher. And she introduced herself and said, I hear you're making a book about your mother. And I said, well, yeah, I am. Mm. You know, I guess in the ballet world. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she said, who are you doing it for? And I said, well, me and my sister. And she said, no, I don't. (laughs) I don't mean that. What publisher are you doing it for? And I said, oh, oh, I'm not. I'm just doing it for me and my sister. And she said, well, that's very unusual. I said, I don't know, because I'm <laughs> not in this world. I've never done this before. She said, well, Brilliant. can I see what you've done? I said, well, I wasn't going to show anyone. I was going to wait until it's finished uh-huh. because, 
you know, although I've never done this before and I basically don't know what I'm doing, I'm making it up as I go along. I do, I do have a very personal and strong point of view of what I want it to be. And so I would like to finish it without someone telling me what I can and can't do and then take it out, see what it is. If it's halfway decent, I could show it to someone then. She said, no, no, you don't understand. I was a dancer and my mum was a dancer who auditioned for your mother's ballet company. Oh, wow. And the director offered her a place, but her dad said that she couldn't join the company because she was only 17. And I thought, well, this is karma. I mean, how many publishers who were dancers and had this connection to the material are going to be calling me? (laughs) That's an amazing... Things like that are amazing. Yeah. Well, I do believe in kind of karma a lot of the time, and these things do happen, don't they? Sooner or later, right? Yeah, exactly. The the consequences may not happen immediately, but they come around. I know you lost your dad when you were, what, how old were you when, when your mm. dad had a terrible car accident, Se- didn't he? 17. Oh, God. Yeah, just before I was 17. Oh, it was dreadful. It was, you know, it was like the line in the sand of our family's life, the mm. before and the after. Mm. We were waiting. We were going to have dinner. It was in the it was June and Dad was coming home from Vivian Lee's memorial service. Oh my goodness. And uh was he driving? Yeah, he was driving. He came home and my sister had her boyfriend there and I had a boy who I didn't know that well who was there. We were gonna have dinner, but the sister's boyfriend needed to go home. And my mum was just about to drive him home before we had dinner. And dad said, oh, I'll, you know, I'm already in the car. I'll I'll drive him home. And my sister and my brother got in the car with my sister's friend. And they drove him to his house, which wasn't that far away. And his dad had been in the Coldstream Guards all through the war. And my dad was in the Coldstream Guards. So they stopped and, you know, visited a bit. And then dad drove my sister and brother home and crashed the car on the way home. And it was, you know, 100 yards from the house. Oh, my God. And so my mum and granny, Russian granny, and me and this boy, who I didn't know terribly well, were waiting, waiting for dad and my brother and sister to come home. And a lady from the local post office came running up the driveway, screaming, completely hysterical. And she was like waving, come, come, come. So the two of us just ran. We didn't know what we were running to. We ran down the driveway, back out onto the road. And there across the road of the T-junction, we could see two ambulances and police cars and just the tail end of dad's car sticking out of the ditch, sort of wedged around a tree. Oh, my God. And we rushed towards the car crash. There was no other car involved. I say no other car involved. Did, did, did you no. ever find out why or I how? I don't know. Because your long... sister and brother survived, didn't they? They did. My brother was very badly hurt. It was before seatbelts and he was in the front seat and he went into the windscreen. And my dad went through the windscreen and... My sister crawled out of the shattered windows at the back of the car and my dad died with his head in her lap. And, you know, none of us were ever 
really the same. I mean, the whole family disintegrated after that. My mother, you know, in spite of being a big international star and artist and everything, had been raised to follow orders. Orders from her mum, orders from the ballet company, orders from her husband. She wasn't designed to be a captain of a ship. Mm. Um, and she was a child. She never really grew up because mm. she'd never been allowed to make her own decisions. No. So we found ourselves three grief-stricken children and my mother, another grief-stricken child, on a ship floating in the sea with no captain. So you were seven. Is that one of the reasons that you eventually ended up in America? Was that to kind well, of get yeah, away? I, mean, or? I, I was not quite 17. My sister was two years younger than me. My brother was four years younger than me. And we lived a very insular family life, our home, you know, the house. Mm. And our home, the people in it, our dog, that was our entire world. And a year and a half later, mum sold the house and emigrated and went off with someone else. And we were just kind of left. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so did you, is that when she went to Australia? No, she went to Switzerland first. Oh, okay. Um, she lived in Switzerland for 15 years. And I was just, it was just before I became a drama student at Central. And my sister was sent to a boarding school that she'd never been to before. I mean, there was nowhere to put the children. We didn't have a home. And my brother went to live with our cousins in Yorkshire. And then he went to a boarding school in Switzerland. And then he went to a boarding school in Canada. And there was no family anymore. I mean, there was no family house, but there was no family. Yeah. I didn't see my brother and sister much for the next four years and i because i i read in your bio that you 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 trained as in ballet as well didn't you oh yeah i was terrible uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you were it was no no it was a very humiliating experience my sister and i were forced to go to elmhurst ballet school in camberley and i was there for eight years from the age of eight to nearly 16. And, you know, two hours a day, five days a week in the studio with the mirror and the old plonkty plonk piano in the corner. And, you know, I was the daughter of this super famous ballerina and I disappointed everyone. <laughs> oh, that's awful. It was awful. That's awful. For you know, you. everyone thought Mind I was going you, to be. Mind you, I, I knew you must before I even knew your story. I knew you must have done ballet because you have got the most beautiful posture and you only it's, it's I always the think posture I of like no, I always think I look like a dromedary. <laughs> no, you've got the most beautiful straight back. Carly always said, Oh, Victoria's got the most gorgeous posture. <laughs> and ballerinas do, or or anyone who's trained in ballet. My mother walked like a penguin with her feet, you know, in open <laughs> oh, yeah, position. They turn out. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I find that when I'm at rest, standing in a corner, I I look down and my feet are in open fourth. <laughs> That's so funny. So then you, you went on to drama school. You got into Central after you decided ballet was not your thing. Oh, I, you know, it was very clear very soon that I was not going to be a ballerina. I was horrible. I was tall and thin. 
I mean, I'm not super tall, but I got to the height I am when I was about 12 and mm. terribly thin. I looked like a sort of epileptic spider in my <laughs> leotards. And... <laughs> Oh, it was ghastly, and you know, I I'm really sure wasn't. You didn't. I'm sure no, you were I wasn't. Gorgeous. Well, I can tell you, my <laughs> first, my first performance at Elmhurst, I was given a pas de deux with another girl, and we looked like Laurel and Hardy. I was tall and thin; <laughs> she was short and fairly plump. And there we were. We were poodles. We were in black tights and leotards. They put black paint on our noses, and we had like poodle pom-poms on our bums and, you know, poodle ear stuff. And my mother arrived early for the performance, of (laughs) course. She sat alone in the middle of the front row wearing a big black straw hat with sort of fake cherries on it. (laughs) And, you know, our our music started and I peeked out from the wings and there was mum prominently in the middle of the front row. And, you know, we caper onto the stage as poodles. And my mother looked at me and went, (gasps) and buried her face in her hands and cried. And I'm looking at, you know, out of the corner of my eye at my sobbing mother in the front row. It's like, Jesus Christ, you know, I'm a poodle up here. Give me a chance. (laughs) I'm amazed you ever went into any sort of show business after that. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I never thought that I was good at anything or I could be good at anything because I was this, you know, failure as a dancer. And we did have drama classes. And I was talking to a couple of girls in my class one day. Um, This was when I was about 11, I suppose. And we were talking about who was a good dancer and who wasn't a good dancer. And I said, do you think anyone's a good actor? And they said, one of the girls said, well, the drama teacher says there are three girls who have talent in the school. And I was like, whoa, did she say who they were? And the girl said, well, one of them's you. And I was like, what? Me? (laughs) No one ever said I could be good at anything before. I went home and I thought, oh, my God, I could be... I could be an actor. I could be good at something. Teacher never told me. It was all third hand. Wow. But from that point on, I had wanted to be a costume and scenery designer like my grandpa. From that point on, I wanted to be an actor. Wow. Somebody put. Somebody gave me permission to dream. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. So, so when so you did you you went to Central and came and did you stay in the UK or did you go because. As long as I've known you, you've lived in America, so... Well, I was... When I was at Central, which was, you know, an amazing, life-changing experience for me, Mm -hmm. because for the first time I was doing something I really loved instead of doing something I was miserable at. I loved it. I was with people who were doing the same thing and they loved it too. We were all, you know interested in the plays and what was going on and we went to the V&A and looked at the costumes Mm. and the zoo and we studied animals and we did movement and voice and rehearsals and it was all thrillingly great. It was also my lifesaver because I was still in a state of absolute grief. You know, my dad had gone, mum had disappeared We had no home anymore. My brother and sister were in other countries. And this gave me 
A replacement family gave me something to wake up in the morning and look forward to. It saved me, completely saved me. Um, and, you know, but I was in a state of grief and loneliness. And then this Swiss Italian man came along. I don't know, I met him at someone's house for dinner or something. And he was like, oh, come with me. You know, I'll take care of you. Come with me. And I was so young, 19, and lonely. And, you know, it's not like I'm proud of it. I was vulnerable and I was not strong enough to say I can do this on my own. And I didn't have anyone to say, Victoria, you don't have to do that. You can do it on your own. Mm. You know, we're here for you. You can do it. I didn't have anyone like that. So uh, I went. I walked out of my life and I I went to be with him. And it took me a long time to grow up and to know that I was strong enough to be on my own and do what I wanted on my own with or without someone. It does, But it takes a long, I mean, you know, because what happened to me in, you know, from going from being a schoolgirl to being known all over the world, I was incredibly young. Yeah. And you think you, you, it's, on one hand, it's very exciting, but on the other hand, it's terribly scary. And you think you can't be on your own. And it's not until you get a bit older and realise, well, hold on, I can do well, this you, and I can do a, that. You had a powerfully strong and connected family. I did, yeah. So I did even have if that. you were out in the outside world with this, you know, phenomenal thing happening to you, I didn't have a family or a home. I mean, they were all gone. You must have felt so alone and, and adrift. Totally adrift. I mean, yeah. it was like, you know, I used the metaphor of, we were all, you know, four sailors on a ship with mm. no captain. And then the ship sank and we were all floating in the sea in our life jackets and we washed up where the tide took us. So when did you actually go? Because one of the, my my first big memory of you before I knew you was when you did Winds of War, mm. the big T American TV oh, series. That- that was, yeah, that was... I mean, that was major, wasn't it? Was that why was. you moved to LA? Yeah, it was, because it took 14 months to film. Oh, my goodness. And I, I was in living in London, but by the end of it, you know, I'd spent these wads of time in Los Angeles because it was an ABC Paramount yeah, yeah. show. And so, you know, we filmed on the stages at Paramount quite a bit, as well as on location. And... One of the producers was a lady called Barbara Steele. And she said to me, oh, uh, Victoria, you can't. You can't go back to London. You need to be here because you're going to get a lot of work when mm. this thing comes out. I mean, I know it's being edited now, but when it comes out on TV, you need to be here to yeah. you know, be here for that moment. And I said, well, but how am I going to be here? Where would I stay? And she said, <laughs> with me in my guest room. Oh. So I moved into her guest room in her amazing. flat. And lived there for months. She was incredibly kind. And then one day she said it. She lived in a a house that that was divided into four apartments: two on the ground floor Uh and two on the upper floor. And she was on one of the ground floor ones. And one day she said, "Oh, you know, the other one across the hallway is is coming empty. I think I'm going to move there." It was the mirror image of the one she was in. I said, "But why? Why would you do that?" She said, oh, you know, just for a change. 
and you can stay here. So we carried all her stuff across the hall to the mirror image apartment. (laughs) And she left me with, you know, a bed, a chair, a lamp. And I inherited her apartment and continued paying the rent. So so I didn't even have to find somewhere to live. So then I went, I lived there for, you know, a couple of years. And by then you were kind of ensconced in LA. Then Windsor, you know, I mean, I was completely unknown. And then Windsor War came out and, you know, it was a, a huge deal in America. And huge. I, and I got, you know, I got lots of work after that. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. I mean, for an actor to, to be employed for 14 months at a time, <laughs> you know, was absolutely brilliant. And it would be, you know, four weeks on, four weeks off, six weeks on. And you played Robert Mitchum's um, love interest, didn't you? Oh, yes. And was, he, was he wonderful, Robert Mitchum? He was Totally wonderful to me, totally. I was scared stiff when we started work. I'd never met him, and it was really unusual. There was this huge, you know, multi-million dollar miniseries, and there were no rehearsals. Oh, no read-through or anything? No, nothing, nothing. And there was no even, you know, cup of tea to meet everybody, nothing. And (laughs) I said to the director... No, I'm just me. <laughs> and Robert Mitchum, for crying out loud, Robert Mitchum, I mean, do you think we could, like, meet and have a cup of tea, you know, before we start work? And they're like, oh, I don't know about that. And I said, well, okay, if you give me his number, maybe I could call him and ask him, oh, no, no, we can't give you his number. It's like, oh, crikey. <laughs> so, jeez, uh, a whiz. So the first day's work was on the... The Queen Mary in Long Beach was, we were supposed to be on a ship crossing, you know, to Berlin or something. And that was on a Monday morning. And that weekend I got the flu and I woke up sick as a dog. I mean, just, I crawled on my hands and knees to the shower and I thought I have got to pull myself together. This is the beginning. This is a huge break (laughs) for me. And I felt so sick and I, somehow got myself in the shower and I lay on the back seat of the car as it drove me down to Long Beach for an hour and a half and I thought cup of coffee and some toast I'm gonna be fine cup of coffee and toast gonna be fine gonna be fine and I get there and it's like coffee in a Danish it's like okay coffee in a Danish I'll be fine I'll be fine with a Danish and I'm just about to go into hair and makeup you know, looking like something the cat brought in, and they go, "Oh, Mr. Mitchum, we'll see you now." I'm like, "No, no, no! I need to go into makeup first. <laughs> no, no, Mr. Mitchum, we'll see you now." I'm like, oh, "Oh, crikey!" So they take me to his cabin. You know, one of these state rooms. We were all given cabins as as our dressing rooms. Yeah. And there was famous Robert Mitchum, and you know, he's like, "Howdy!" And I'm, "Hello, Mr. Mitchum." I said, I tried so hard to meet you, but you were like the Queen of England. No one would give me your number. <laughs> and I said, I was just so frightened because, you know, you're Robert Mitchum and like, <laughs> what, you know, we're going to be working together. What if you didn't like me? I mean, we haven't even rehearsed. And he said, well, you know, I'm sure it's going to be fine. And I said, look, maybe this job is just another job for you, but for me, this is huge. So... I really feel we need rehearsals. And he's like, yes, ma'am. And I said, no, we, we, we need to rehearse 
And no one's, no one's organizing any rehearsals. So you and I need to rehearse on our own. Yes, ma'am. And we did. Oh. I mean, ev- every free day we got together and we went through all the scenes for the oh, week. Wow. And there was a little bit of, you know, nipping and tucking that needed to be done to some of the dialogue. And then the director got wind of this and he said, oh, Victoria, I hear that you're rehearsing with Bob. Don't you think I should be there? And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> you're very welcome. He said, all right, so, so I'm going to come. And he said, no, could you just run your dialogue changes by me first because Bob will do anything you say. I'm like, sure, okay. So it ended up that first the director came and then he got the cinematographer and the camera operator and then the continuity. And then he said, why are we sitting in Bob's hotel room? We'd go out to the locations and we'd actually rehearse on the locations. And so when we got to do it, it was like, you know, boom, boom, boom. It was great. Brilliant. See, there you go. Robert was so kind to me. He could have had me for breakfast, but he was so... (laughs) so kind to me oh. and his wife was so kind to me they kind of adopted me I never met him actually but <clears throat> I, I always heard what a gorgeous man he was well and... a huge compliment he treated me like one of the guys <laughs> 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 and you know I mean he was kind of a babe magnet but he treated oh, me like yeah. one of the guys and um yeah because he was one of the old school American superstars wasn't he Mitchum. Yeah. He was oh, huge. totally. Absolutely huge. Yeah. And he, we started work in November. At some point, he said, "You know, what are you doing for Thanksgiving?" And I said, "What's Thanksgiving?" <laughs> he said, "Oh, okay. God, right. You're you're going to have it with my family." Oh. So I had Thanksgiving with the Mitchums. I had Christmas and New Year with the Mitchums. They just folded me in. Their daughter was the same age as me, and we became very good friends. Oh, and, that's lovely. What yeah, lovely they, were lo- so that's why, they were lovely. So that explains why you ended up living in La La Land. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, an actor goes where the work is. I got a job and then another job and another job. And then, you know, like the third job out, I did um, all of me with Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin. That's and then Steve and oh, I Oh, is that ended how up, you met Steve? Yeah. Then we ended up getting married. So then I was definitely there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you couldn't get married and then go back to London. <laughs> Not really. Uh, yeah. So, you know, so then we were there and then... Five years later or something, Steve and I did another picture together called L.A. Story that he wrote. That was a big film. I love that film. Oh, that was lovely. Yeah, it's a great film. Yeah. Very sweet portrait of Los Angeles. Yeah, it is. Like Woody Allen's portraits of Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a lovely, lovely film. Yeah. If people haven't seen it, they should. I'm sure you can get it in different ways of getting films today you it's, can get almost it's anything sweet and it. funny and steve is fantastic yeah, in it. yeah he's well, great he's a great talent yeah <laughs> my producer agrees <laughs> <laughs> but um so so but and then i met because i met you because you did would you can you remember what it was called what you did with lee my husband uh, it was a uh, mini series wasn't it yeah barbara taylor was it a, bradford. barbara taylor bradford who's lovely actually i love yeah. her oh she's a lovely lady she's gorgeous and her husband produced it and it yeah, was a Bob huge bradford. huge cast yeah and huge and cast. lee was in it and you and that's how you two met and then i met you yeah. obviously when you know you yeah, came to london yeah it was tremendous and, fun there was 
Lee and Pip Torrens. Was it Tears on, on in the Rain? Was it Tears in the Rain, or is that another one? I can't remember. I can't, Voice I can't of the remember. Heart. I can't remember. I can't remember either. <laughs> <laughs> We've got it somewhere on video because let me have a look. In those days, oh yeah, you've got your list. Sorry, um, yeah, it was Voice of the Heart, Voice Pip of Torrens, the Heart, yeah, Pip, Pip Torrens, Richard Johnson, Honor Blackman, James Brolin, Lindsay Wagner, Lee Lawson, Neil Dixon, and Stuart Wilson. That's right. That's right. So much fun. We were playing rich people, so we were in. Stately homes in England, and then we were in the south of France. That's it's right. Like, what's it, not I rem- to like? <laughs> I remember Lee saying, oh, great location. We've got south of France. <laughs> and it, Pip Torrens was a baby actor then, and this was his first job on location. Oh, we all was kept it? Saying, oh. Yeah, we all kept saying to him, it's not like this. It's usually <laughs> not like this. <laughs> don't, don't get too... Too in love with it. It won't be like this again. Oh, my God. We just laughed and laughed and laughed. We'd go out and have fabulous meals in Nice or something. That's the best. That's the thing Lee always says about, you know, do it when you do like a miniseries or you do... Well, it happens in the theatre if you do a show. You you do get like a little family and you do all end up going to dinner together. And there's something lovely about that, I think, in the acting profession. I know. And they... The boys would make me hysterical. They'd start me laughing and then I couldn't stop. (laughs) (laughs) That's almost as enjoyable as the the work itself, isn't it? Well, in some cases, more enjoyable. Yeah, depending on what it was. Well, it's been an absolute joy to talk to. I mean, you know, obviously we see and talk a lot but it's been lovely for you to share those stories oh, see I didn't you. it's interesting you always think you know somebody really well and um and when they're because when you're friends with somebody you don't when you meet you don't talk about things like that do you and so it's it's really interesting to hear those amazing stories amazing it's so funny because guess who we had lunch with yesterday we went to lunch with Joan Plowright Dear, dear Joan. Yeah. Isn't that who was married to Laurence Olivier? Yeah, well, when when Uncle Larry <laughs> got engaged or decided that they were going to get married, they came to our house and, and camped at our house for a bit because the, the journalists were after them to get pictures and stuff and they, they hid at our house for a bit. Oh, that's so funny. She's such a lovely lady. Such lovely. an amazing, amazing, yes. amazing lady. Yeah, but that's kind of I said when we you were talking about them. I said so funny because we hadn't seen her since we went to her ninetieth birthday um, thing at the National um, Theatre. Um, we hadn't seen her since that's about three years ago. But um, it was just lovely to see her. She's so sweet. She's very funny, actually. She tells very funny stories. Yeah, I remember she, her, and Laurence Olivia came to the first night of the the show I did on Broadway. Oh, yeah. And um, it was so funny because they sent out invitations to loads of people. You know, they wanted to get some faces mm-hmm. in the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think I suggested them and I said, they probably won't come. And they were the first two that answered yes. <laughs> <laughs> How lovely. I was very nervous, I have to say, knowing they were in the audience. But, oh, um, yeah. And then we had a lovely dinner afterwards with them. They were lovely. So I, I've kind of stayed in touch with Joan ever since, really. I remember a little story about un- Uncle Larry and Joan. He, when, when they were first married, they lived in Brighton. And 
Larry was doing a play in London, and so he'd commute to do the play. And Joan had the kids doing, you know, bedtime prayers before getting into bed in their jammies. You know, it's our father, say after me, our father, our father, who art in heaven. No, he's not. He's in London. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, I hope I get to see you really soon. Well, in these yes, weird definitely. days of not travelling. Although you're, you've been braver than we have about travelling. I was but, pretty um, nervous. And, were you? I mean, honestly, COVID tests up the wazoo. I spent I a fortune on COVID I tests. Know. But um, we needed it. I mean, my daughter really needed yeah, I know psychologically you... to feel like the world hadn't dropped I off. I know, you know, I know. Are they both? Are they both okay? And will you give them both my love? And from Lee sends lots of love as well. Thank you so much for including me. Oh, thank you for joining me. Gosh, what amazing story! It's so funny when you know somebody so well, and yet you don't know all those stories. I'd heard a few of them, but extraordinary life, unbelievable. And fancy having Laurence Olivier as your godfather. Amazing, amazing. She's a really super lady and lovely, lovely friend. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, catching up with Victoria Tennant. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy, or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.